Welcome to the five things this week in social, or maybe I should say this year in social. As we've done for all of 2022, each week we break down and take a deeper look at the five most talked about stories from the world of social. And today we're going to zoom out and take a look at the whole year and then zoom in on what it will mean for the year ahead. There is no need for a recap show without what it means for the future. Normally, this show is me and two of my gray colleagues discussing the events of the week. But for the end of the year, it's the five things extravaganza. There are five panelists here for what we are affectionately calling the party pod. This is the most people we've ever had on the show. What could go wrong? For our intro today, we're going to look for a one-word answer from all of the panelists about what platform do you predict will have the best 2023. So on the show today, we have Kane Fair. Hi, Kane. Hi, Joey. What platform will have the best 2023? Snapchat. I like that. All right. Let's keep going. All right. Also on the show today, we have Taylor McLean. Hello, Taylor. Hey, guys. What platform is going to have the best 2023? I got to go be real. Be real and be real. All right, Daniel Avon is here. Hello, Daniel. What's up? Hello, Joey. Good to see you. Good to hear you. What platform is going to have the best 2023? Instagram. Ooh, all right. Chelsea Sugai, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing so great. What platform is going to have the best 2023? I have to say TikTok. I'm surprised it hasn't been said yet. There you go. All right. And finally, introducing the newest voice on the pod. Welcome, Jess Womack. Hi, Jess. Hey, Joey. How are you? All right. Same question. I'm sure you know it by heart by now. What platform's going to have the best 2023? It's got to be TikTok. This is a surprising group of answers. <laughs> I like it. As always, I'm Joey Scarillo, and I'm looking for big things from LinkedIn. Why not? Right? All right. Now, here are the five things. First up, Chelsea will dive into all of the year's drama at Twitter. Then Kane tells us about the platforms that are ramping up on e-com. Then Taylor will explain how being real is for people and not for brands. And Jess will break down how TikTok is the Pac-Man of platforms. And finally, Daniel will talk about the AI generator explosion. All right, let's get into it with all of the things. First up, no surprise here, all of the drama at Twitter. Chelsea, tell us about it. Hi, so I'll do a quick recap of, of what Twitter has gone through, specifically over the past couple months. And we all know that Elon was talking about buying the Twitter platform and then actually had to go through with it and finally purchased it for $44 billion. And one of his first measures of business when he walked in was he fired half the company. Along with that came many resignations also in their senior leadership. And it's quite interesting. They ran through it so quickly that they had to ask people to come back because they actually had fired too many people for the platform to continue running. And there was a point in time where I think we thought we were all going to lose the platform over the weekend, but somehow, luckily or, or unluckily, it's still here. And it's really struggling to keep the company afloat. A majority of that is because of how much ad revenue that they've lost. Major brands, including Volkswagen, General Motors, United Airlines, they've all had to pause their advertising on Twitter. It lost a considerable amount of money. And so Elon has been struggling to try and figure out how to make back some of that revenue, considering monthly memberships for $8, a random number that I think it was Stephen King proposed to him. And 
he went with it, but they still have got quite a lot more revenue to make up. He's predicted that they're in such dire financial shape that bankruptcy is still possible, but he's trying to still court advertisers. And, you know, it really comes down to, he said he was this big champion of free speech. He's brought back a lot of right-wing personalities, including Donald Trump back onto the platform. But at the same time, he's also punishing employees and blocking people left and right for anyone who dares to disagree with him publicly. So needless to say, the platform is in a bit of disarray. It's chaotic. There's been a considerable shift in the types of paid content that we're seeing on the platform. But what I think that's going to mean for the future, while we're all here today, is I think that's going to create a lot of opportunity for copycat platforms to emerge. But then also, I think a lot of other platforms are going to try and create their own Twitter-like features. I was reading an article about how Meta had a brainstorming session to have people come in and talk about how they can begin their own kind of micro-blogging features potentially on Instagram. They're like, maybe we'll call it Instagram Note. So definitely, I think even Scott Galloway was talking about how there's so much toxicity and just going around with, with Elon being there and just kind of the mass exodus of advertisers, it really is creating a big opportunity for another, either a new microblogging platform, maybe a potentially different business model or some of these other platforms to kind of absorb the elements of Twitter that have been really successful. In terms of the platform going away or kind of shutting down, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But I do think that a lot of advertisers will continue to stay away, especially as it continues to be kind of chaotic. I could see some advertisers returning, especially if a majority of our audience and their core user base is there. Maybe they'll continue to do some organic content. But for the most part, I think that people are going to definitely take a step back. I do see Twitter still being a place where a lot of like culture is, is created and talked about. So it'll be really interesting to see if any of these new platforms create something new or create some kind of alternative to the platform. But needless to say, I think we're all kind of watching it spiral and, and kind of turn into a shell of what we thought it was at, at one point. But it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. Interesting indeed. And interesting that you mentioned Scott Galloway. Some have speculated, much like his podcast co-host Kara Swisher, that Twitter might look very different in some time and might even look more like a digital first media company. Daniel, I'm curious, what do you think that this new Twitter under Musk's watch could look like? So I think it could go one of two ways. It also depends on like why he even acquired this platform to begin with. One side of it is Maybe he just made a really bad business decision and was forced into it and he doesn't know what he's doing. But the other end in what you guys are talking about, it seems like they're trying to clean up house of the liberals that may have taken refuge and talked on the platform and cleanse it of them and make it a sort of echo chamber for a right-wing voice, a haven for them to talk about the things and possibly in this new format or fashion that y'all are talking about. I hope it's not the latter because there are so many good things about Twitter. And do you think of things like when Tumblr was acquired? I think it was by Verizon way back when. And they removed adult content so that they could have advertisers and brand safety on the platform. And that just completely destroyed it, but it was intended to be a good business decision. It just didn't really understand how the platform worked. So long way to say it may be the former, it may be the latter. I'm not entirely sure. I'm just hoping that if it does implode, we have somewhere else safe to go to microblog about this next season of The White Lotus. I always wonder what the end of Twitter is going to look like. Will it just be that we finally reach the bottom of the timeline or will the whole thing just sort of shut off all at once? Only time tell. Well, speaking of business decisions, let's talk about e-com and the business decisions that the platforms are making for e-com. Kane, 
Why don't you break all that down for us? Yeah, I think 2022 was the year of just making social platforms the end all of the purchasing funnel versus just the top of the funnel awareness or education part of the purchasing experience. So what we saw in 22 was this massive push for e-commerce across a variety of platforms. I know recently we talked about YouTube tapping into the e-commerce play and allowing users to purchase directly in app or on platform. TikTok recently launched one. They did a big global push for testing and then past couple months have really ramped up their efforts in the US. So you'll be able to actually have product awareness, product education, and then just purchase through, through the app versus having to leave the app to go make that final purchase. Instagram, I know we, we've all seen that. That was kind of the first one to tap into in-app purchasing. They've done a great job. I don't think that there's anything that they haven't done that I would recommend them doing. It's just the power of these other platforms and how they're now leveraging e-commerce is going to probably change the game for how we see purchasing journeys. I mean, like I said, social now isn't necessarily the place for like only product awareness or product education. It's now allowing this whole conversion inside the app with just the tap of a finger when you see something that's interesting to you or relevant to you. And besides that, I think in the halo effect, this is going to even empower influencers and content creators more because as we have seen, their role has very much been this awareness, maybe product education, product excitement role. But now they're actually able to start tracking more directly the direct in-app purchases from their efforts and hopefully see a bigger value for their content being created and also see them being more influential for a purchase than previously that brand saw. So big changes, exciting changes. I'm all for it. Make it as easy for me to purchase the things I probably don't need, but I like. And I'm excited to see what TikTok does. I think that's going to be the golden nugget of their platform. They've done great on, on audio and video, but now if they can convert this all into a, a sale, like I think it's going to be a very powerful tool. Yeah, e-com is definitely an area where I think that we all should be watching. And I know the team over at Gray Midwest is, as they just relaunched their industry newsletter called The Slate, which just came out this month in December. So friends, if you haven't checked that out on LinkedIn, and you should do that. Taylor, I'm curious, when it comes to e-com, what do you think is the next frontier? Where can we go? It's a great question, Joey. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> I don't think there should be a next frontier. And maybe it's just what I've been researching a, a lot lately. But the average American home has 300,000 items. I feel like we've entered a place now where culturally, it's just we're living in a time of just mass overconsumption. And so it would almost be nice if not that they would, I think if social platforms kind of help to do the opposite and help us only buy the things that we really need, just thinking ahead. So I don't know, from a consumer standpoint here, not at all completely brand or advertiser standpoint. Chelsea, do you think then that there is a opportunity for folks building in the metaverse to build more digital products? Of course. I mean, I definitely think there is. And I think there's going to be a blending of not only like entertainment and shop or, or it's going to be a blending of entertainment and shopping. So definitely within the metaverse, if you think about gaming or you think about you know building avatars and the clothes that you might need for that, there's definitely an opportunity for more of those purchases there. But I also think getting back even to the social platforms that live streaming and like live shopping is also going to be another kind of wave of, of what, how people are going to be spending their time, especially as they're interacting with live videos. And now you're going to like, let's pretend an influencer is talking about a product on a live stream and then it's so easy to just purchase it right then and there especially like Kane said on TikTok I think there's tons of opportunity but it's all going to be about time spent wherever they are on whatever device it is getting them to spend the time learn more about them and then ultimately make that purchase that's how they're going to get us bring back that QVC 
All right, so let's jump into Be Real. I know this is one that has been on a lot of people's minds. Taylor, tell us, is Be Real for people or for brands? Great question, Joey. Let's start a little bit with just about how popular the app has become. So it kind of entered the scene this year. And as of just two days ago, it is the number one downloaded app. And recent market research estimates that it's been installed 20 million times and they are continuously raising more capital. So they just secured, I think, 85 million from a former Facebook investor. And that would mean that Be Real is being valued at about $600 million. So it entered the scene this year and it's kind of blown up. And for those of you who don't know, just to kind of give a little summary of how it works. Essentially, you get a notification at a random time of day. You've got two minutes to capture your Be Real. And it'll take a photo at the same time as taking a selfie and you post it. And once you post, you're allowed to see what your friends have posted too. And so what I really love about this app in particular is it just feels like the complete opposite of all the other social media platforms we have. It feels like, you know, you post, you scroll, you spend a few minutes on it a day and that's it. And what's really nice about it is you're seeing your friends in their day day-to-day lives. It's not anything polished. More times than not, it's mostly people just, you know, sitting on their couch or watching TV. And there's something that feels really nice about that. I feel that Be Real is becoming popular because it doesn't create social anxiety the way, say, Instagram does in this pressure where you're constantly like comparing yourself. It does really feel like you are engaging with your friends and able to see what they're doing, which is really why all of the original social apps like Facebook and Instagram actually came to be. And so it feels like, well, they maybe have lost their original purpose feels like Be Real is being very intentional with that. And they clearly say that they don't want advertisers or brands to be a part of it. And I think that's for good reason. I do think the only way maybe brands can have a little bit of an authentic place with TikTok is say if you have a face that represents your brand. The best example that comes to mind for me is State Farm with Jake. I feel like Jake could have a really authentic role and he could post Be Reals every day and that would feel okay if you want to follow him or choose not to. I feel like brands that have a face that represents who they are might actually have a role to play in this app. Jess, I checked while Taylor was talking, Be Real did not notify us. I'm curious, Jess, have you played around or used Be Real yet? I haven't played around with Be Real, but I am under constant pressure every day by my friends to download it whenever they get notified. So it's honestly only a matter of time before it becomes another app on my phone that I am addicted to. I think there's an interesting realm of FOMO that Be Real creates that other apps don't because if I miss something that's happening on TikTok or if I've got a friend or a colleague who's not on TikTok and there's something interesting, I can just send them the link and it's fine. But if something happens on Be Real, it's a lot harder to duplicate that experience for people who aren't on it. And I think that's definitely a unique aspect of it that I'm missing out on. Yeah. Kane, do you think that a social network has to be good for brands to be successful? No. I think the root of all these social platforms never started with brand specific goals. I think they are all they're all humanized and people based and then brands identified that as a way to kind of pool the people they're trying to talk to and then they jumped in and made profiles on their own behalf. So I don't think that uh, maybe LinkedIn like I think overall a lot of the social platforms don't start off looking at how brands can interact with it. They start off with, how do we make this a fun thing for our friends and us to use and make a little community out of it? And then 
later on down the line, which we're kind of seeing right now in the be real stage is like, how do we monetize this? How do we optimize this for brands? We have enough user base now that this is probably a goldmine for someone. Let's figure out ways to make it work for a brand. So I think that's just the natural progression. And we just haven't seen an app in the past couple of years take off like be real did. And they're kind of scrambling right now to figure out what that looks like from the monetization or how a brand can jump in there. It'll come in 2023. I guarantee it. But as of now, it's wild west. Yeah, the only comparison I can think of recently is Clubhouse, which if we remember around this time, maybe about a year or so ago, we were all talking about Clubhouse clones. And now we're talking about Be Real copycats. I don't know. But speaking of the copycats, Chelsea, you know, we were chatting a little earlier today about a feature from Instagram. This could be like a little bonus thing. What's this new feature from Instagram? Yeah, and TikTok is doing one too. It's essentially copying Be Real, having some type of notification go off where people can all, you know, show what they're doing at this exact same time. And this is what Instagram does. They copy a feature that's being successful somewhere else and try and sell it to everyone who's already on Instagram. That's how stories came about, stole it from Snapchat. So it seems pretty par for the course. But again, capitalizing on this idea of trying to show what your friends are doing, show what you're doing in a moment to be a little bit more authentic, to add a little bit more of the realness that social media used to be. And that's also why I think it's it's so successful is that people miss kind of the old days where it, it was the wild, wild west. And we did get true glimpses of what people were up to. And so I think that's just what we're trying to recreate right now. Well, whether it's Instagram or TikTok, everyone's going to try to jump in on other platform success. So speaking of TikTok, Jess, let's talk about it. The Pac-Man of platforms. Why do you call it? I think that it's called, well, I don't, I'm going to hope and pray that nobody else on the internet has called it the Pac-Man of platforms because I thought that it was me being clever and I was excited to share it with you guys, but realized I probably should have done like a quick sweep beforehand. But calling it Pac-Man of platforms is the goal, mostly just because it's eating up the lunch and dinner and breakfast of so many other platforms and apps these days. Particularly this past year was a really big year. It's been for multiple years in a row. It's been the most downloaded app. It was the first non-meta app to surpass 3 billion downloads worldwide. They've had a 700% increase in the ratings in which marketers decide whether or not it's an effective platform for reaching consumers. And then from like the pure consumer standpoint, you know, they're going to reach like 1.8 billion active users by projected by the end of the year. So you know, they're exploding both internally, they're exploding their influence internally and externally. And so I think the interesting thing that we're seeing happen is from an internal standpoint, you know, they have trademarked TikTok music to potentially release a streaming service in the coming years. They're experimenting with in-platform games and in-platform sales. They even experimented this past year with a resume feature in the app in which recruiters can post jobs and then those jobs would be fed specifically to people who are interested in these things due to the algorithm. And then conversely, people could put their resumes out and then that would get matched up to people who's trained their algorithms to look for those individuals. So there's this huge sort of, you know, 
convergence that's happening where they're trying to sort of eat the lunch of every app is, you know, off limits. So, and then externally, you know, I think what's interesting is people are using TikTok in ways that was not expected in past times. You know, it's kind of replaced news outlets for a lot of people. One in three users go to TikTok first for news updates. People are using it in place of Google search, in place of things like music curation for Spotify and things like that. So I think this is just really interesting because this is going to be one of the first apps to ultimately, if it as successful as it's been, it's going to be one of the first apps to have a completely new competitor set from multiple industries. At this rate, TikTok could ultimately be competing with both traditional broadband TV and streaming, given that, you know, people used to say that in the past when Netflix was hitting its peak, their biggest competitor was sleep because people would fall asleep to it. Now people fall asleep to TikTok. And years ago, people would fall asleep to TV. There also could be in a new competitor set with SoundCloud in terms of being able to upload original music to their library. They could compete with Condé Nast in terms of you know, cooking and shopping and interior design. It's really interesting to see the way that they're just kind of eating up people. And if they're going to start doing resumes, then that means they're going to eat up LinkedIn. And I don't like it. It's going to be fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Kane, this reminds me, right? So at one point, Instagram was at the top and now TikTok has reached the peak. So the question is, where does it go? Where does TikTok go in 2023? I think it's going to be more experiential based, like what they can do to create things that are not just watching or interacting with a video or a photo or an audio file. It's how do they take it a step further? And I think their their introduction to the e-commerce space is one of them. They've They've partnered with that live event platform that has seen great success internationally. So I think going live on TikTok will become something that's a little bit different than we saw this year or previous years that they could tap into for next year. I just think that they have such a such a strong user base and people love the platform that they have the ability to take that brand loyalty and start pulling it out into like beyond what they've currently done. I think maybe not the most apples to apples example is you look at something like Red Bull and Red Bull started as a drink and Red Bull now is never I mean, rarely do people actually drink it. The majority of their experiences are coming from these larger entities and larger initiatives that are, of course, tied to Red Bull, but they're part of a bigger plan. And I think TikTok can do that. They have their core. They they have the platform and it's so successful. But I think they can branch out and start doing things much beyond just what the, the phone app can do and really tap into maybe events and live events and e-commerce and all the things that come with that brand loyalty that they've already established. And Jess also mentioned search, which I think is super interesting. Daniel, in your work, have you seen that Google is now finally maybe having a little bit of competition from TikTok when it comes to search? I would say more so than maybe Bing coming from TikTok, you know, in terms of the competitive set for Google. But yeah, I think as Jess was saying, like we see particularly with the younger generation, though it is with all adoption curves skewing into the older generation as well, a lot of discovery on platform. Like as an example, it may have been in the past whenever cooking inspiration came from microblogs that you go to Google and you say, I want personal plug, like I love Smitten Kitchen. It's an amazing microblog. I would type in Smitten Kitchen chicken recipe or whatever. And then I would go to her website and I would see it. Now people are discovering food recipes on TikTok. Like that is the first place you go because not only is it the recipe itself, but it walks you through it and you learn how to make it. It's just 
You know, if the content itself is matching the query in a way that Google helps you with, but it's just so much more quicker to it that I think not only is there the adoption of this behavior, but it's being adopted because the content that they're getting there versus in a Google is exactly what they want versus having to sift through Google searches. Chelsea, how might TikTok replace Twitter? Is that possible? I mean, it could for sure. I mean, even look at the the changes that TikTok has made with still photography, where you can make essentially like a little carousel as like a new format. It could be. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about how Twitter is used so often by journalists as updates and as things happen and how journalists are now pivoting to video for TikTok and how that could replace it. It'd be interesting to see how that might come to life in terms of like the real time factor of it. Because I do think the other element of Twitter that was great is that you you could all watch a show like White Lotus together and you could see all the commentary happening pretty much in real time. That's not necessarily the case on TikTok because of the beautiful algorithm. So it'd be interesting. I think obviously changes would have to be made or different features or elements. But it's an interesting question. I'd be curious to see how that comes to life. Well, we will be keeping an eye on all of it. I always say that, but it's so true because you are all on the pulse of all of it. All right. Speaking of the pulse, let's talk about things that don't have a pulse. AI. Daniel, tell us about this AI generator explosion. What if AIs do have pulse? We'll talk about that another day. They may just yet, but as it currently stands, don't see any pulses in the AI world. However, this AI generator explosion, as we're calling it, has really come onto the scene and into the zeitgeist in a big way in 2022. To plug ourselves, if you want to delve into the past reporting that we've done, we've talked about Dolly 2, TikTok's AI green screen, Meta's make a video, and most recently, Lenza. These latest advancements in AI, because AI machine learning have been a part of our lives for actually quite a while, but these particular advancements have started to bring a lot of questions into the public forum. And these are the things that I want to talk about today. Ownership and compensation, bias, and whether or not ultimately computers with or without pulses are going to replace humans. Firstly, ownership and compensation most meaningfully came into the conversation with Lenza because we've been given a bit of a peek into how this system came to be. AI and machine learning don't just happen out of thin air. These systems need to be, quote unquote, trained on things and processes created by humankind. Said another way, the systems learn how to make new things based on how things have been made in the past. So in this particular example, Lenza trained on the work of artists who were not compensated or even really acknowledged. My opinion is there should be or needs to be tracking and fractional compensation for the usage of a given artist's artwork in generating an AI image. Much like in the music world, when you sample a song from another artist, you have to credit them and compensate them for any royalties that you make off of that song. I think this should carry over within the AI generator space. Bias is also something that came up a little bit with Lenza, but it's kind of a broad thing with AI generally, because as it is inspired by human experience, it carries with it the baggage, prejudices, and biases that come with human experience. Read an article about maybe a judge leveraging AI to help understand how to hand down sentences to people who have come into trouble with the law. The legal system has historically been extremely biased against people of certain backgrounds, to say the very least. So if we're using AI in this way, unless the the computer scientists, the data scientists that are training the algorithm, are training the system, correct for these biases, 
AI will continue to perpetuate this cycle and it will just continue on. So in the instance of Lenza that we saw, an Asian woman put her portraits into the app and got back some hypersexualized images. So what needs to happen with these AI interfaces is there have to be peer reviews, public reviews from a diverse board of people to ensure to the best of our still imperfect human abilities, we are correcting for biases. And lastly, and perhaps the most poignant for those of us in the creative industry, will computers replace art directors or any of us, really. In the first story about Dali, we talked about Walter Benjamin essay where he ruminates on what making photography widely available to the public imports for the work of art. We stand at a similar precipice. We've been given another democratizing form of art that brings with it new and evolving standards of what constitutes art versus what doesn't. So as an example, with this text-to-image generator space, possibly art could be defined by the most creative, interesting, and specific queries that lead to the best selected images. You know, I don't know if this is going to substitute any other art forms. It may just be another one that exists. And also... Speaking to the creative industry, not telling an art director what to do because I myself am not one, but it could be another tool in their arsenal of how to work out ideas. They could input their thinking about what things could look like, take from that what they want to, and create their own recommendations for clients. Just as something like an Excel or automated phone systems help us get to solutions more quickly, these AI tools need human interaction to be of value. And so that piece of things is going to continue to be important. I personally don't think, at least in this initial stage, AI is going to replace us, replace humans. But this revolution, in my opinion, is a sign of things to come, a sign of additional involvement and more direct involvement of AI in the way that we do our jobs. And this 2022 is just another step on the path to where those solutions can take us, how they can involve, and how we can continue to be the beating pulse of what AI generates for us. Let's hope they don't replace us. All right. Jess, what do you think the future looks like when it comes to AI, when we think about its impact on culture? I think one of the things that Daniel just talked about that highlighted sort of the weaknesses of AI is at its current state, its inability to truly innovate. And in regards to AI's impact on culture, it's really just going to be more of a mirror of what is already happening in culture and what is already interesting. I think the downside is as we rely, like Daniel was saying, as we rely more and more on AI to to produce this reflection of culture, whatever it is, art, music, whatever, it's going to become harder and harder to trace back sort of credit at which creators often lose. So I think right now you see it all the time in the fashion world in which, you know, indigenous patterns are used and discarded really quickly. You see it all the time in music. It was a huge, it was all of TikTok's narrative, not to talk about TikTok again, but it was <laughs> their whole narrative. Their first like two years of being was how, you know, Black creators weren't being properly credited for the dances that they were making. I think the downside with AI is that we're going to see that happen more and more. I also think think that the downside with AI is that if it is generated or given direction to create things that engage shock, whether that's positive or negative, it's often going to lean into the negative. So it's going to lean into hypersexualization, going to lean into perhaps racist imagery, offensive imagery. There's a really strong chance that it's just going to spew out some of the more unkind things that exist within culture today. Taylor, does it all scare you? Definitely. I feel like when I think about 
how it might evolve and into the future it does. I think right now it's it's almost at a place where it's almost like a meme. I don't know if you guys have been seeing just how everyone is using AI to basically see images of them of what they would have looked like in the past, say if they were like in the 1950s and the 1960s. So where it stands right now, even in its crude nature, if you put aside the fact that it does some really negative things to it almost feels right now like it's just it's something funny and it's a meme. But I think when you think about the future impact as it continues to evolve and evolve, it, it does, it is kind of really scary. And I don't think it would replace us. But the fact that even agencies are now starting to experiment with bringing AI into the kind of creative process, it does signify maybe a huge change in the way that we work going forward. So I definitely say it gives me the chills. I'm not looking forward to the day when we're briefing in an AI on a creative project. Chelsea, one of the things that Daniel mentioned was this use of AI from a judge bringing down a ruling. I'm curious, do you think there's a world where actually legislation could be passed and built and written around the use of AI and how it affects us on a day-to-day basis? I mean, I think... What's scary is that there's likely going to be no oversight as it exists right now. And I think that that's a big issue that the crypto world is also now facing. And so, you know, these new technologies, these new digital products, these new digital creations, a lot of it's kind of our first time really understanding and, and, and interacting with them in our real life and impacting our real life. So that that kind of regulation, that kind of oversight doesn't exist yet. And knowing the way the government works and how slow it is to kind of catch up, it is scary to think about a world in which we need that protection and then that oversight, but it might not exist and you know could fall into the wrong hands. And who knows what could happen. I mean, the whole topic of this podcast is, you know, kind of crazy about what's going to happen and and what we're going to see in the future. But that is definitely something to keep an eye on because it does feel significant. All right, Kane, let's turn this around. What's one positive thing that you think could come could come from AI in 2023? I mean, I think AI can help us solve a lot of problems, too. I mean, there has to be, at this day and age, I'd assume, a human filter, human eye on it to make sure that it's acceptable for what it's developing. But I think it does have some power, especially when you look at the mechanical side of things or just more mathematical, maybe not so much cultural or emotional. But I think there's still a lot of benefit with the science and the and the data that's coming from AI. And another thing is, in my opinion, it's right now it's still at the the seedling stage, maybe a sprout stage of what what it can do. And I think that's what's scary about it. I think that we know that it can morph into something much bigger than it is. And while some of the seeds might be bad, I think some of them might be great. And we just don't really know what the power of it is just yet. But I think these people that are behind it hopefully are morally following their compasses and are being able to tap into what the power this can have for the better. And it's it's freaking geniusly smart. Like to even get to where we are is incredible. So yeah, there is some negatives and we've seen some negatives and, and can kind of fear for the negatives, but also there's going to be positives out of it. What they are, TBD, I'm not that smart. I'm not AI, but I, I do think there's a benefit to all of it as well. Yeah, I mean, with every tool, right, there is a positive and a negative way of using it. I mean, I'm sure 30 some years ago, people were saying the same things about the internet. So I guess we just all have to be hopeful and hope that the positive prevails. And who knows, we could get more things like AIs writing Drake verses. 
Well, that does it for us for the day. It does it for us for the year. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, or write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints. Or if you just want to send us a thing to discuss on the show, you can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank our amazing panel today, Kane, Taylor, Daniel, Chelsea, and Jess. Jess, please come back. Let's make it a thing. And as always, thanks to Samantha Geller, Amanda Fuentes, and the crew at Gramercy Park Studios. And before we go, I just want to take the time to thank someone who has been absolutely pivotal to the podcast team. Danielle Hunt joined the podcast at a critical moment and has served our small podcast team as a producer, a panelist, a hype woman, a cat herder, a therapist, and at least to me, most importantly, a friend. And I believe that is true for everybody at the agency. She is moving on from Gray and her impact on the podcast and the agency at large will be missed. Danielle, thank you for everything. And finally, thank you, listener, truly. We will be back next year and we will be back in mid-January ready for more things. So in the meantime, be safe, be kind, be festive, and as always, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.